0: The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Well, that's some pretty cool news coming out of the world of baseball. Doesn't help us much, this being a basketball podcast, but you know what? Damn it. We can talk about it a little bit, I suppose. Good day to you, everyone. Happy Tuesday, April 28th. Woof. I'm telling you, man. They talk about quarantine fatigue. I've got it these days. I am Dan Baspris. This is Fantasy NBA Today. A hoop ball presentation. Big shout out to all of you folks that have reached out to me again about our open sales positions. Uh, There are quite a few of you, actually. One, two, three, four, five, six, something like seven or eight of you guys. That's pretty cool uh surprised me considering we're in this weird nebulous time but at the same at the same time in the same token i think this is an interesting moment for a lot of us where this is kind of like the well you know if i'm gonna make the leap to sports might as well do it now while nothing's happening many folks i know are kind of between jobs at the moment hopefully you guys been able to get your unemployment checks and so forth and um Looking for good folks who want to come on and do some sales work with us here at HoopBall. We are continuing to grow, even in these weird times. So I would encourage you to reach out at Dan Bespris on Twitter, D A N B E S B R I S. Give me a follow, and then I can direct message you with more details. Or you can email teamhoopball at hoop ball.com. That's a website. Teamhoopball, all one word, at hoop ball.com. We're back into the team by team breakdowns today after spending yesterday on one of our lessons of the year. I'm actually having a lot of fun with these lessons of the year. In fact, I, I actually really enjoyed making yesterday's podcast. It was, we had some other stuff to talk about, which was less fantasy oriented. We talked about the last dance, we talked about uh, NBA perhaps reopening workout facilities in the next two weeks or so. A little bit less than that actually now. I believe next Friday was their target date to start opening some stuff on a really limited basis to players. But I really enjoyed... I enjoy these these lessons of the year. I enjoy taking lessons away from every team because this is when we hone our craft. It's kind of like actual NBA players, you know, without the actual running, jumping, and sweating. All right, maybe we sweat a little bit. In that... When you practice during the season, for us in fantasy, our practice during the season is scouring the waiver wire, trying to make sure we're just getting the guys we want and not screwing anything up. But the offseason, that's when we up our game. That's when we change the way we draft, when we change the way we analyze, when we change the way that we isolate value and we get better overall. It's like we added a new concept. The one-footed step-back jumper? Nah, we're going much higher tech than that. We're changing our game, man. That's what this is all about. So today, we're back into the Southwest Division. We're finishing it up with the Memphis Grizzlies, last team in the Southwest before we head to the Eastern Conference. Last week, Tuesday through Friday, was the Rockets, Spurs, Mavs, and Pelicans. The previous week was the Northwest. The week before that was the Pacific Division. It's actually borderline amazing how far we've gotten into these post-mortems and how we still don't really know what's going on with the NBA, but we're just going to keep trucking along. We're going to learn our lessons. We're going to keep talking about the last dance, and before you know it, it's going to be freaking June, and hopefully we'll have some damn information by that point. Thank you to all of you guys that have continued to listen to the podcast even during these weird times. If you have a moment to grab someone else's phone and rate and review the podcast. I'm betting most of you guys that are still listening to the show have probably already done it on your own phone. Again, it's the podcast app on your mobile device or the podcast tab in iTunes. Search for Fantasy NBA Today. Click on the show title at the bottom of that resultant page. That's where you can find the rating and reviewing stuff. Throw a five-star in there. If you write something funny, I'll read it on air. That's sort of the same stuff. I haven't bugged you guys about it much because, you know, covid But here we are. Before we get into the Memphis Grizzlies, I wanted to mention that there was an article floating around earlier today that I thought was kind of interesting about baseball and the idea of realigning divisions so that teams don't have to travel as much, but still playing games in empty home ballparks. So no crowd noise, but also not the crazy stick everyone in Arizona plan that it seemed like a lot of players were not super into. And the target time for this is late June. So baseball's hoping to get going within the next two months. That would be absolutely fantastic. My lord, could my brain use that. And I don't see any reason why the NBA shouldn't be able to target a similar outlook. If that's what some of the... Because, you know, you're getting quotes from Governor Cuomo, uh, some of the, the higher-ups in Illinois, places that have been hit particularly hard by the virus, that they're optimistic they can get the testing structure in place by the end of June to make sure that sporting events can start to come back. So that's a really big deal. Just hearing, because this is, li- listen, this is the way I look at it. When we're not getting told anything, that means nobody really knows anything. When When they start to put these plans out, and when... People in the know, which is the higher-ups of the leagues, in government, whatever, when they start to say things like optimistic, that's when we can start to think, okay, they're starting to get data behind the scenes that explains to them this is how we could have this situation not rectified because it sounds like, I mean, I don't think we're having fans at sporting events for a long, long time yet, but... The idea of actually getting the games going, keeping players testable. I mean, they could test entire teams right before games start. I think the hope is that by the end of June, which let's remember again, by the way, it it feels like the NBA shut down nine years ago, but it was March 11th. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven weeks ago. So when you talk about late June, you're talking about another eight to nine weeks. And all the craziness that's happened in the seven weeks since the NBA shut down, it's that and a little bit more. So that's how far down the road they're looking. It's a weird phenomenon going on in my own head, and I'm sure you guys are experiencing the same thing, where you're like, good Lord, how far we've come on this insane pandemic. And even though it feels like it's taken us 20 years to get to this point, it's been seven weeks since we all really started paying close attention to it. Eight if you're someone who was super in tune with things. In the regular populace. I know there was plenty of intel, high level intel, but we're not we're not privy to that. We regular folk. So to think, okay, how can we possibly get all this done in the next 8 to 9 weeks? I mean, look what's happened in 7. Had time to screw up a whole bunch of things, try to fix them, screw up a whole bunch more. But again, you know, three, four hundred thousand tests a day right now are getting done. And that's just ramping up. So they're still looking at all these opportunities. And the fact that baseball is starting to eye a particular window of time gives me a little bit of optimism that I haven't had for sports in general in a little while. Let's talk about the Memphis Grizzlies because uh, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter show today. Time is as usual, particularly short for yours truly, uh, but getting it all done, we're working it in there. And so we'll tackle the Memphis Grizzlies in, well, somewhat the usual way. I, I mean, the. They're, they're, I almost want to start this team with the lesson and then loop back around to actually breaking down the individual individual players. But you know, what? We'll, we'll start at the top, we'll work our way down the list, and as the lessons pop up... We will will cover them. Grizzlies were a fun team this year. Really fun team. You guys probably saw me post on Twitter, uh, along with uh, our good buddy, friend of the show, Jonas Nader, over at Roto World. Basically, that we wanted to be part of the Grizzlies fan club. And uh, the Hoopball Grizzlies guys have done just a, uh, a fantastic job throughout this season uh, with their podcast, getting guests on, and, and breaking down the team. So... Uh, Wonderful work all the way around by, by our Grizzlies people. And just a uh, mega, mega shout-out to David Williams and Sam Bruski over there. No relation, by the way, to Aaron Bruski for uh, maintaining the Grizzlies coverage. They've been an incredibly fun team. They're the eighth seed in the Western Conference. Massive overachievers. World's fastest rebuild and all that good stuff. And yet, and yet, despite all the, the accolades and how well they've played, they only had really... And this is going to blow people's minds. Three players that should be permanently on fantasy rosters. And one that's not, one that doesn't really need to be on a fantasy roster is number 127 overall, John Morant. But we're going to loop back around to Ja because he's the fourth highest ranked Grizzly on the list. Uh, Jonas Valanciunas, not to be confused with uh, Jonas Valanciunas. <laughs> I was going to call Jonas Nader. Uh, Jonas Valanciunas, also known as the wildebeest here among hoop ballers, averaged 15 points, 11 rebounds, 2 assists, half a uh, steal, and over one block on a pretty reasonable volume, 59% from the field, and a uh, slightly lower than usual, 73% at the free throw line, which, again, talks speaks to the fact that he could have actually been even better this year. But he played in 62 of the Grizzlies' ball games after starting the year with an injured foot. Overall, a massive success. One of the guys that, that we wanted desperately on our fantasy teams. I was able to get him in two spots, but I wanted him in way more than that. The fact that he only missed the three games was a big win for Valanchunas. It allowed his totals value to be number 28 on the season to this point. So uh, even better in that regard. The key for Valanchunas has always been minutes whether or not he was going to get minutes. He put up big numbers in Toronto in only 19, 20 minutes a game, moved to the Grizzlies, and then went buck wild late last year with an unseasonably high turnover count that was actually kind of artificially depressing his fantasy value despite the giant stats he was putting up alongside of that stuff. So you knew coming into this season, the turnovers would come back to earth. He was at just 1.7 this year. The minutes would probably be high but not as high as last season and then you were just looking for everything else to kind of level off and and he delivered this was someone that again we were targeting in drafts he generally went later than that usually in the 60s i got him at 65 in one of my leagues that of course you know that's one of the teams that i was happiest about i had him and i traded him away in another league not because i wasn't happy about it but because i felt like i was getting uh, pretty good value back on that deal Uh, And overall, just one of those guys that, that we were really excited about. I think he went at 59, actually, in my other pretty damn competitive league. There isn't a whole lot to take away from Balanchunas. It's simply just, do we know what his role is going to be on a team? Because he can escalate, his value escalates faster than a lot of players does, given his excellent fantasy stat set. You put him out there and and you can go back to the end of the previous season where, by the way, overall last year he was still number 75, but the last month of last year in Memphis, and I got to make sure that I'm getting the numbers right on this, he averaged averaged 20 and 11 with 1.6 blocks, but was only number 50 because his turnovers were at 2.7. And his field goal percent was actually down at 54 and a half. So all of that stuff you looked at last year and you're like, oh, well, this was in 28 minutes a game. The volume probably wasn't going to stay where it was, but they did trade away Mike Conley, who was the highest usage guy on the team. And despite bringing in John Morant, who basically became the highest usage guy on the team, the, and, and that's just, not just in Dylan Brooks actually took more shots per game than Jaw, but if if you uh, adjust for assists, Jaw clearly had the ball in his hands more often. So yeah, Jaron Jackson Jr. was was healthier this year. Uh, Jaw came in and took 14 shots a game. Dylan Brooks took more shots than he probably should have, but still the opportunity was there for Valanciunas. You knew he was going to get the minutes. Brandon Clark was going to be the backup center on this team. Jaron Jackson Jr., there was talk about him playing some backup center, but he just sort of wasn't big and strong enough yet. And so it felt like Valanchunas' role was pretty safe, especially when the Grizzlies re-signed him. So all of the stats, all of the notes, the stats all pointed to something great, and the narrative pointed to something good. So that one all came together pretty easily. Which is also why I don't want to spend that much time on Valanchunas. That one is just a quiet victory, a guy that we liked his stat set, and he delivered. Easy enough. As you look towards the future on a guy like Valanciunas, you know you're, you're you're constantly trying to figure out does his role get sliced into at all? But he signed a three-year deal, so it seems odd. By the way, it's a descending value: sixteen, then fifteen, then fourteen million dollars. But he's signed by the Grizzlies for another two seasons, so. They like him, they're going to use him, and he has plenty of fantasy value even in less than 26, 27 minutes a game. You back him off to 24, and he's still inside the top 75 probably pretty easily. What about the guy directly behind Valanchunas this year? And that was Jaron Jackson Jr., who had stretches of top 20 value during the season, got off to a slow start, kind of leveled off a little bit late in the year. Had a rough go very recently. Remember, he hurt his knee and missed a few weeks. Uh, But overall, it was sort of like a down, way up, middle, and then hurt season for Jaron Jackson Jr. When you roll it all together, he's number 65 in nine category leagues on 17 points under five rebounds a game. That's just, that's simply not going to cut it. Two and a half three-pointers, 1.6 blocks, which was trending up after a very slow start in that department. 47% from the field, 74% at the free-throw line. There's a lot to like about Jaron Jackson Jr. Make no mistake, he's not a guy that I am down on by any stretch, but I he is a guy that is generally a bit overdrafted. This is well behind, well behind, where he was going in drafts. In my most competitive league, he went at 38 And he was going around 40 in almost every fantasy draft that I was a part of a little bit earlier and just a hair later in some than others. The upside is so obvious with him. So I totally get taking the chances with a guy like JJJ. Uh, In 30 deep, I took him crazy early. I think I took him at 32 because he was just part of a build that I was working on. But there are very few guys in the NBA that can roll up points, threes, and blocks, and do it without really hurting your percentages. Although certainly for JJJ, we'd like to see a little bit better in those departments than what we got this season. But, you know, he took a billion three-pointers, so kind of hard to expect a whole lot more in field goal percent. But, you know, free throw percent was down two and a half last season to this season. Minutes were up two. I think I'd like to try to get those a little bit higher, 29, 30 perhaps next year. But those guys are pretty rare. It's kind of that Miles Turner build. And for guys like that, it's exceedingly easy. Brooke Lopez, but he doesn't score all that much. It's exceedingly easy for guys like that to post fantasy value because blocks are so scarce. So if this dude ends up rolling up two blocks a game and doesn't get himself into foul trouble and somehow manages to continue to up his usage and raise that scoring average from 17 to 18 or 19... Now you're looking at a guy where if he can get up and over the 5-rebound mark and give you something like 19, five and a half, two blocks, and almost 3 3-pointers, three that's a guy that probably does sit inside the top 35. Then it comes down to percentages. Is it 47 and 74? Or is it 48 and 76? Or is it 49 and 80? And if it's 49 and 80, then you guide yourself a second-round player. Easy. So the upside's always going to be there for JJJ. He hasn't fully tapped into it yet. Question is, can he and when he? When will he, I should say? We need to know when he's getting drafted next year. If he's getting drafted at 40, it's going to be a tough sell for me again. With the possibility that I might lunge at him if I get, say, three really safe, strong value plays, my top three picks, and honestly... If you have an early pick, if you have the first or second pick and you end up with like a James Harden or an Anthony Davis in the first round and some of those interesting guys are still around in the second, third turn, that's when you could consider it. Although you make the argument then that uh, your fourth round pick isn't until pick 48, so you probably ain't getting him anyway. But it's in those instances where you're looking at maybe a pick in the 30s if you were going to get weird. If you had three guys that you really liked, generally, I think I'd be looking him in the fourth or fifth round, and I don't know if he's going to fall that far, even though you've got to take a little bit of a gamble on the upside there, so I I totally get it. This is one of those ones where I didn't do it this year because I felt like there was still too much buzz around his name, but one of these seasons, I'm going to take the plunge on JJJ. The question is, when am I going to do it? because he's awfully close to clearing that hurdle. You saw it. I mean we we all did. We all saw it when he had that that stretch in the middle of the season. I think it was from like the beginning of December. I gotta try to figure out if I can if I can determine when this actually happened. I think it was like December through the beginning of February or something like that. I jeez, ah, I'm probably getting the date range wrong. but there was a stretch in there where JJJ was rolling along at about a top 25 clip. For about 15 to 20 games. Where he was shooting like 50% from the field with three threes and two blocks. Exactly what we were talking about. As a possibility for next year. But the percentages have to be good. They have to be. If they're not, those other things are just not going to get him over that last big jump by himself. I don't think he's ever going to be a first round guy. I know there's been talk about him maybe getting all the way up to that level. But you kind of need to... You mean you need to be something insanely special to get up to the first round without having the ball in your hands. Most of the guys in the first round have really high usage rates. And JJJ's is, well, not, not as high. You know, he took, what did he take this year? 13 shots a game? 13 shots a game? Look at the guys in the first round. There is one guy who is under 13 shots a game, and that's Hassan Whiteside. And the reason he's in the first round is because he shot 62% from the field and averaged over three blocks a night with 14 rebounds. He was hyper elite in two categories and nearly hyper elite in a third. Whereas with JJJ, you're looking at his numbers from this year. uh, He wasn't elite in anything. He was very good in blocks, but that's it. You have to be something crazy good in usually multiple categories, to get that high without taking more like 15 shots a game. There are some first-rounders that are taking 15 shots a game. Jokic took 15, but he had 7 assists. John Collins took 15, but he only played 41 games. So we don't really know if that was going to hold for an entire season. If you look at the second round, there are a couple of guys that are wiggling into that territory. Jimmy Butler, Chris Paul... Each in that 13 shot area, although each with six to seven assists. So, again, that's more usage on their shoulders. And both guys have very good free throw percents. Chris Paul, very good in both. Jonathan Isaac only took 10 shots a game, but averaged four combined defensive stats. And then you get down to Clint Capella, who was at 14 and 14 with almost two blocks a game, uh, but hyper elite in field goal percent and rebounding. So, again, it's really hard to get into that upper tier without taking more like 15 shots per game, or if you're going to be under that, it's got to be because you're distributing five, six, seven assists a night or getting four defensive stats a game. So, again, that's that's where JJJ is going to have to make his hay if he wants to get into the top 25 without really dialing up his percentages. If he doesn't, if he doesn't want to dial up the percentages, you can get into the top 40... 40 to 45 range on lower shot volume. Rob Covington did it with his defense. Bam Adebayo did it with a well rounded attack. Rudy Gobert did it with rebounding and defense. Miles Turner did it last year with blocks generally. But usually you got to be taking some shots. Usually. And that's the thing. So that I mean that's why I'm always a little bit skeptical here. And the only other Grizzlies player to reach inside the top 100 this year was rookie Brandon Clark. Yes, a rookie. He might be like 25 years old, but he's still a rookie. Clark averaged 12 points, just about 6 rebounds, under just under a block, half a steal on 62% from the field, 79% at the free throw line and under one turnover per game. He was a can-we-just-unleash-him candidate for pretty much the entire season. But the beauty of Brandon Clark is that even without getting fully unleashed, he only averaged 22 minutes a game. He still managed to get inside the top 80. That's a good sign. His season, like so many others on the Grizzlies, sort of fluctuated to and fro, and he was hurt more recently, which is a shame because his minutes were actually trending up from 22 to more like 24 over the two or three weeks before he got hurt. And although his numbers didn't change all that much, you did see a little bit more defensively and glimpses of the Brandon Clark upside. Question is, where is he going to find all of his minutes? I reckon Gorgi Jang is probably not going to be chewing up any minutes going forward. So you're looking at a Jonas Valanciunas, Jaron Jackson Jr., Brandon Clark front court on this team with little snippets of slow-mo and Josh Jackson mixed in if they wanted to kind of go real small. But in general, those three guys are the the future front court of the Grizzlies. And so you've got to figure that they'll try to, to add a minute or two to each of their buckets going into next season. I mean, this team really didn't put too much of a burden on their guys. John Morant averaged 30 minutes a game, and that was the highest total of anyone on the Grizzlies. No one averaged over 30 minutes a game. Morant was at 30 on the dot. JJJ was at 28. Dylan Brooks, 28 and a half. JV, 26.3. Clark, 22. And that was it. Those are all the Grizzlies who averaged over 20 minutes a game this year. So they really distributed things. They really distributed the minutes. And that sort of... Again, it created this weird depression in value. So this indeed is a team that's looking to make a push as they go forward. First of all, I'll say this. They made a big jump this season. They're going to have a hard time making an equal size jump next year when people are kind of coming for them a little bit. They're not going to catch people by surprise quite as much. But at the same time, JJJ should get better, as should Brandon Clark and John Morant should almost definitely get better next year as well. So what does that mean for a guy like Brandon Clark? Well, I don't think you can make a super liberal estimate here and say, well, he's going to get 28 minutes a game next season. But I do think it's fairly reasonable to say, you know what? This is a guy that can probably log, I don't know, four, three, four minutes at the power forward spot. Not many, but enough perhaps alongside Valanchunas or alongside Jaron Jackson Jr. He could play the center, those two guys together. Keep JV in that 26 to 30 window. JJJ, maybe he can go up from 28 to 30. So each of these guys could potentially see a very small step forward, provided they can all stay on the floor next season and provided they don't bring in anybody else to take a big dent out of the front court. Because they're really, you know, front court wise, not much beyond these dudes. And then you got Gorgie Jang floating around, who doesn't do much of anything if the rest of those guys are healthy. So I like Brandon Clark for next year. I think he could continue to be. I think he would a value play two seasons in a row because I don't think anybody really appreciated what he did this year outside of the hard cores. JJJ, curious where he's going to go. Valanchunas, uh, just, I, I love it, man. I love his steady state game. He gives you some blocks, good percentages for a big man. A lot to like about that there. Now, what about the guys that didn't quite make the cut? And let's circle around. We're going to bury the lead a little bit on this part. Let's talk about some of the guys that didn't make the cut despite opportunity to do so. Dylan Brooks finished at number 175 despite playing the second highest number of minutes on the team. Took the highest number of shots on the team at 14.2 and hit just 40% of them. Intensely bad volume field goal guy really didn't do enough else. He had a couple stretches this year where he was posting top 75 value for a couple of weeks. But for the most part, when he ran cold, he ran ice cold and was dealing negative value to your team. So be not seduced by players that can score at volume. The game, the fantasy game, is so, so much more. And I'm also thinking this dude is going to see some of his minutes get chomped on by Justice Winslow, who, uh, in regular formats, I'm not super into either. I know he was hurt this year, but he shot 39% from the field and 67 at the free throw line. He's another guy who has awful percentages and has throughout his brief career. I'm not buying into that one. Anything outside of a points format, you gotta have to show me something else first. So Dylan Brooks, Justice Winslow, right out. Tyus Jones, 19 minutes a game, right out. DeAnthony Melton, had an opportunity, and Lord knows we liked him a lot coming out of the All-Star break. His minutes did trend up as the season moved along, but his production didn't. In an unbelievable twist, he played almost 24 minutes a game. And this is the, the head-scratcher to end all head-scratchers. DeAnthony Melton averaged 19 and half minutes a game this year and was number 169. When he started playing three or four additional minutes per game, his per game value went down. He stepped away from doing stuff. Once he had more time on the floor, he took a more passive role in almost every element of the game and became less valuable. And to me, that's a guy that I'm just not trusting. Unless we find out that the Grizzlies basically cut ties with half their roster, I'm not taking a chance on De'Anthony Melton next year without a bunch of guys getting hurt. Justice Winslow is going to be in front of him for minutes He's going to be fighting with Tyus Jones. He's going to be fighting with Dylan Brooks. John Morant obviously has the first crack at it, and that's the last name we're going to talk about on today's podcast. John Morant, who played 59 games to his credit. The young fella had some injuries this year. Actually had a fairly ugly one, but bounced back from it pretty quickly. Averaged almost 18 points, 3.5 rebounds, 7 assists, and a steal on 49% from the field, 77% at the free throw line, and yet somehow couldn't crack the top 100. Here's the somehow, under one three-pointer a game, under one steal per game, very few rebounds for a pretty damn big point guard, 77% free throw on pretty high volume is not good for a guard, and then 3.2 turnovers as the primary ball handler on the team also held him back a bit in nine category leagues. There are plenty of ways for John Morant to get up and over that top 100 mark. Number one, add a three-pointer. Eh, probably not going to happen for his second year. Number two, increase the assists. Mm, possibly, but I wouldn't say by much. Maybe enough to raise him around a round of value since everybody's so clustered at that point. Rebound a bit more. This one feels doable. He did rebound more in college, only three and a half here year at the NBA level. That's a number that I've got to think can get into the fours. Will it by his sophomore season? I don't know, but three and a half felt real low. Steals at point nine. That was really low. And I maybe I shouldn't have expected more, and you guys know I don't pay a ton of attention to the college game. But this is I expected him to be over one steal a game. And as his minutes trend up, you might just see that point nine go to one point one just because he'll be on the floor a little bit more. And then finally, free throw percent. Uh that's one that was, you know, not colossal at any point, but seventy seven has got to get a little bit higher. So to me it feels like there's a lot of small ways that John Morant can get better for his sophomore season. I still think he's going to get overdrafted next year on name value, so I'm not expecting to get a lot of Ja Morant's Jaws Morant. I don't know what the plural of that. On my fantasy teams next season. Uh, but if you are, you're probably going to have to overpay a little bit and hope that all of those things I was talking about, hope they all come together simultaneously. He had a lot of freedom freedom this season to sort of grow and learn, and overall he he stayed pretty constant throughout the year. And I don't know if that's really a good or a bad thing. So in summary, Jonas Valanciunas, probably going to be a fine ADP match next year, meaning you'll probably get his value about where you pick him up. JJJ probably be a little bit overdrafted. Brandon Clark, I think, will be a pretty good value again. Morant's going to get overdrafted, and I don't care about the rest of these clowns. What's the lesson we can take away from the Grizzlies this year? What's the lesson? Well, I think the lesson is... That we should amend one of our trademark statements here on Fantasy NBA Today. One of our trademark lessons is don't draft rookies. But let's amend that. Don't draft rookies early. Don't draft rookies early course, one of the problems is that by the time fantasy drafts rolled around this year, Brandon Clark was generally going in the 7th or 8th round, which started to get a little bit early as well. There were some places where he was still going close to the edge of the top 100, and at that point, and this is something I want all of you guys to do as we're going through these podcasts, look at look at the guys that were drafted around the edge of the top 100 in your league and tell me how many of them had intense upside tj warren was i think a pretty good example of someone drafted near the top 100 that ended up pretty good sergey Ibaka, because half of the raptors were hurt this year that did the trick um marcus smart had some value drafted near 100 meh brandon clark who we just talked about brandon ingram who was one of the best picks in all of fantasy. Um, uh, maybe Boyan Bogdanovich, but I wouldn't get too excited about him because he he really began to taper off as the season went along. Um That's about it. And then you can, you know, you can keep look working your way through all this stuff. Derek Rose, who was drafted in like the 140 range, he ended up having some value from late picks. Evan Fournier was a good late pick. The point I'm trying to make is. It's not like there was a run of guys near number 100 in fantasy leagues that were, that were doing really good things for your teams. You really have to go back into the 70s and 80s to find more consistent, I say consistent, performing fantasy players. Like picks 80 through 100, and I'll just read them off from one of my really competitive leagues. Aaron Gordon who ended up playing really well, actually, as the season went on. When we talk about the Magic, we'll talk about his uh, growth as a as a playmaker. Karis Levert, who really only did stuff once the entire team was hurt. DeJounte Murray, Hassan Whiteside, one of the other best picks in fantasy. Derek Favors, Ricky Rubio. Uh, actually, pick 86, things get a little bit weirder. Jeff Teague, Zach Collins, those guys didn't do anything. Freddie Van Vliet, that was a good one. Jeremy Lamb at 89. Saturansky 90. Jared Allen at 92. And that's it, man. After that, it's like one out of every four guys panned out. The point I'm making is you can pretty much do whatever the hell you want by about pick 85. And so if you draft Brandon Clark at 85, and he gets pretty close to that value with a chance for upside late in the season, then that's worthwhile. And so we are amending one of our tenets here on Fantasy NBA Today. It's no longer don't draft rookies. It's don't draft rookies early. Don't spend that top 40, 50 pick on a rookie because it's just not going to be there. There's too many things they have to learn about the NBA. It's one out of every, you know, three or four years you actually get one that, that hits. I don't think you had any. I don't think you had any rookies inside the top 50 this year, right? Zion was like 150. Ja, we just talked about. Were any of them in there? I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but far be it from me to figure out who it is. I don't think there were any inside the top 50. You guys can yell at me on Twitter. I'm sure I'm forgetting one guy. Anyway, don't draft him early, but if you want to draft him near 85, be my guest. Do whatever the hell you want after that. I know I said No Man's Land starts at 70, but you can still see in these drafts, the guys drafted in that range are usually people that, you know, you've done your, you've done your research. Near 70, you're still pretty good. 70 through 80 in this draft I was just talking about with Steven Adams, Kelly Oubre, uh, Gordon Hayward, Lonzo Ball, Montrez Harrell, Terry Rozier, Damanis Sabonis, Marcus Gasol, who ended up hurt all season, Larry Dance Jr., and then uh, Miles Bridges, who ended up sucking. But, like, eight out of those ten guys were pretty good this season. So the 70s, you still get a little bit of it. Uh, we talked about it before. Be willing to reach. Here's the thing and then I'm wrapping this bad boy up because I, I I feel like I got a little bit off, off track. These are guys from an actual competitive league of mine drafted in the 70s. These are not the guys with an ADP in the 70s, okay? I want to make that very clear. The guys with an ADP in the 70s, no one knows what the hell's going on there. You can go to Yahoo still has the draft analysis tab open if you want to just look at guys with an ADP in the 70s. Uh, like Marvin Bagley was in there. Uh, Wendell Carter Jr. didn't hit. Then there's the guys in the 80s, Gasol, Bridges. We were just talking about a few of those guys, Joe Ingles. I mean, you know, you're know, you seeing some of the names that I just talked about, but also you're seeing some guys that, like Kyle Kuzma was at 89. Whoops. Anyway, so uh, not talking about ADPs right now. This, this We were just talking about certain guys and, and where they were actually drafted. And basically, at a certain point... And it seems like that point is really pick eighty-five. No one has any idea what they're doing. Those picks barely ever hit, so just start taking some chances. And like we said yesterday, if you get to like pick sixty and your falling guys aren't on the board for you, just go grab Demonis Sabonis. I don't know. I know his ADP is seventy-four, but if you want him, go take him because your other guys didn't fall to you. Fall to you, excuse me. All right, well, I lied. I said this show was going to be shorter and it was about the same length as all the other ones. Happy 40 minutes today to you on Tuesday. Tomorrow, we head to the Eastern Conference, where nobody knows. I'm Dan Vespris at Dan Vespris on Twitter. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. Back at you Wednesday.